Father, we continue in worship and we do completely affirm uh, that your love is absolutely amazing and how marvelous it is, Lord, just that uh, we can stand in your presence and still be accepted and not rejected and forgiven and loved and welcomed over and over again. And Lord, we praise you and thank you for that this morning. And all God's people said, amen. Well, I hope that's not the only amen I'll hear this sermon. Maybe an opportunity or two more for you. Amen. All right. Good. Do it while you're still awake and still thinking. I like that. That's my philosophy as well. Welcome here. My name is Pastor Jeremy Lobdell. Thank you for joining us. If you're tuning in live at home or at the lake or wherever you're at, thank you so much for making a point to still connect with your family at Midland Free. We are a family. We love to be together. We understand people are all over the place today, but we are thankful for you and especially uh, our group here. Lord, thank you for us. Um, last week, we were looking at Mark chapter 12. And uh, if you recall, one of the applications I made is I asked the question, where is home? Where is home? And we talked about your journey throughout life as a child, home maybe one place as a young person, an adolescent, and then eventually a college student, it's a little bit different, and then you're starting out on your own, and eventually you get, perhaps you get married, or you start your career, and then you have kids, and you don't have kids, and then your kids are home, and then your parents, it, it just transitions, it changes all the way through. And today, really, and last week we said, so home is with Christ, but today we're going to tell you how to get there, and particularly the theme that I will bring forth from this section of scripture is that the resurrection leads us home. The resurrection leads us home. If you want to find out how to get there, Mark chapter 12, verse 18 is going to show us that the resurrection leads us home. I'm going to work through two different applications of today's text. The first is going to be explanation of the resurrection. What is it? Christians talk about it a lot. I think most of us get what it means for Jesus, but for us, it's a little bit more mysterious. What does it mean for me to follow in the footsteps of Christ, for you to follow in the footsteps of Christ, not only in life, but also in death, and not only in life and in death, but also in the resurrection as well? What does that look like? And then we'll apply that to um, how we live our lives today. How does that impact me here and now, how does that help? In what ways does that change, benefit, or transform me now? So we're going to look at Mark chapter 12, beginning in verse uh, 18. Mark chapter 12, verse 18. If you have your Bibles, we invite you to follow along. Again, this is another trap set by a, a group of people. This time, not the Pharisees, but the Sadducees. Explain the difference here in just a moment. But let's start out with reading the text, beginning in verse 18. Of the 12th chapter of Mark, where it says this. Mark chapter 12, eight, verse 18 says, And the Sadducees came to Jesus, to him, who's, that's the Sadducees who say that there's no resurrection, and they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, here's the dilemma. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife. And when he died and left no offspring. And the second took her and died and leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. 
And the seventh left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. So in the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. And Jesus said to them, is this not the reason you're wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for you are quite wrong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, let's look at this a little more closely and see why Jesus is so upset. I tried to, you know, be moderate in my tone here, but I think you can tell from reading the text, the tone is pretty harsh. Twice, Jesus says, you are wrong. I mean, that's pretty direct. That's pretty blunt, right? And a lot of our conversations today, we might say, or we might kind of smile and nod if we disagree, or we might kind of turn the other way, or whatever. We're trying to be diplomatic, but usually, usually we teach people it's not polite just if you're in a conversation to be like, "You're wrong, <laughs> wrong, <laughs> wrong." <laughs> it's not a lot of conversations that go like that. But here, Jesus is looking them square in the eyes, and first he says he starts with "You are wrong," and he finishes with "You are quite wrong." I mean, this is for real. He's contradicting them in every way and telling them they're wrong. But let's start with figuring out what they're wrong about. And that is this. The Sadducees begin with a trick question. Like the Pharisees and the Herodians in the previous passage, this is not a real question. This is one of those conversations you know is going nowhere fast. No place, nowhere fast. I mean, they start with something they themselves don't even believe in. Let me show you a chart here. Of the two different groups, we talked about the Pharisees and the Herodians last week. If you need more information, go listen to that sermon. But here's today's picture. Today we're talking about the Sadducees, the people on the far right. And I'm just contrasting the two groups because most of the time in the New Testament, you're hearing about the Pharisees, very rarely the Sadducees. This is the only um, section which is entirely Sadducees. Only section like that. And the difference, I would say, can kind of be summed up in that the, the Pharisees are more broad-minded or open or inclusive and progressive. And the Sadducees are really narrow and like hardliners and conservative and just the bare, bare minimum. And you can see that in how they interpret, for example, the Old Testament. I just call it scriptures for short. But the Pharisees are going to set... The five books of Moses, the law, they're going to accept the historical books. They're going to accept the prophets. They're like, yeah, it, it, this is all scripture, clearly. But the Sadducees are like, no, 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 only the books of Moses. That's why you hear and hear the book of Moses being thrown back and forth. We'll come to that in just a second. But they're like, only the books of Moses. We don't accept stuff by Isaiah, Jeremiah, David, North, nothing. Just Moses. He's our guy. And so they... They're very conservative in their scriptural approach. And that also 
limits the amount of revelation they have. When other prophecies might speak towards the coming Messiah or the future revelation or perhaps other things that we have to look forward to, they don't get that in the early, early portions of Scripture. And so they're, they're narrow-minded, very focused. The other topic would be, for example, the resurrection of the dead. Uh, I said of deceased believers for us in the New Testament as believers, for people of that dispensation or era, it would be... Um, Old Testament believing um, covenant participants or Jews or non-Jews who are brought into the covenant. And for the Pharisees, they're saying, yes, there's an afterlife, there's a future, there's a resurrection. For the Sadducees, they're saying, no, there's, I mean, this life is it and that is all there is. And consequently, consequently, based on that very materialistic view of the world that it's only physical The Sadducees will also deny the spiritual realm of angels and demons. Whereas the Pharisees will say, yes, there is. And why is that a big deal? Because Jesus is going to throw that in their face here in just a second. Just like the angels, you're going to hear Jesus affirm the reality of angels. So that's going to be a point of contention in here in just a second. But the point is, the Sadducees, you can see, are basically like, no, 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 (laughs) no. I mean, if you want to summarize of Sadducee, the answer is no. Now, here's another way to do it. And it works in my mind. I was telling my wife the other day that it's funny what you remember and what you don't. You know, all those corny jokes you seem to remember and all the silly sayings as a little kid, like Beans, Beans, the musical. See, you know that. I mean, Bible verses, they're a little bit fuzzy, but you know that one, right? So here's one that's really cheesy and corny, but it'll help you remember this, perhaps, and that is this. Um, Do you know why each group is named the way they are? I was trying to not give away my joke. The Pharisees are named the Pharisees, and the Sadducees are named the Sadducees. The Sadducees don't believe in the resurrection, and so they are sad, you see. All right, you got it. You already knew my joke, man. All right. So we get it. They don't believe in the resurrection. All right. Slide away. I think I've made the point. Here's the thing. They're coming to Jesus and they're asking him, so what about the resurrection? What? I mean, come on. Really? You're the ones who say there is no resurrection. Clearly, this is not a conversation. What they're trying to do is just like last week with taxes and the jewish people and the herodians this week the division or the unanswerable question is now between the pharisees and the sadducees if jesus says yes there's a resurrection he makes all the sadducees mad if he says no there's not a resurrection he makes all the pharisees mad they've intentionally trapped him in between or they think they've trapped him in between these two groups it's it's a binary question that's really not binary and jesus is going to jump out of that very very adroitly now here's so that's the that's the high level a couple attorneys talked to me last week and they're like boy we understand that when you're trapped with only two ways to go and man that's what's happening here they're setting a trap for jesus the snare is laid they're expecting him to step in it and smash get caught but if you think about what they're actually saying it's super depressing I mean, it really is. I, you know, I'm a pastor, so I've done a few 
funerals. I'm super thankful for Pastor Gibb, our care pastor here. Now I don't have to do everything, and that is wonderful. He does a great job caring for people, and we can divide and conquer. And Yet early in my ministry, I remember when um, one of the funerals I did, you know, sometimes people are just like, we don't know what to do, so call a church, find a pastor, whatever. And this was a similar situation. It was a very wealthy member of the community. They're a business owner. They had multiple different businesses. They're they are very elderly. They passed away, left an elderly widow. And I remember this very distinctly because we were, uh, we'd, we'd done the whole service and there wasn't a lot about God or Jesus because their family is just kind of like, you know, meh. but we got to the very end of the graveside committal and we were walking away and most of us were like, turning to walk away but the widow was still there she was frozen she was stuck she couldn't move and some of the uh, children were like wrapping their arms around her like come on mom come on it's time to go mom it's time to go and her words were it's so final it's so final and she just couldn't do it she's broken and an elderly crying unchangeable sort of way. She just didn't see any way out of the situation. I can remember when I placed my hand on my father's grave and looked into the dirt and been so thankful that she was wrong. Quite wrong. It's not final. Not for believers. There will be a resurrection of the dead when Jesus returns. And that's the promise of the scriptures. And that's why Jesus is so intentional about that saying you don't know the scriptures and you don't know the power of God because if you affirm the scriptures you affirm the resurrection and if you deny the resurrection you deny the power of God and that's a big deal and it's not just theological hypothetical that is like intensely spiritual and emotional because you know what if they're right then all of this is a waste all of this is a wash and everything is worthless why try Everything we invest in comes back broken. Read Ecclesiastes. Look at the meaningless of the toil and struggle and effort of this life. If this is all there is, then man, why not just live it up, be happy, die, and be done? There's nothing. It's complete and total nihilism or hedonism, one or the other. But the scriptures affirm it's not either or, but instead the reality is because of the resurrection, there is something eternal, there is something lasting, there's a purpose, there's a meaning, there's a value, there's a direction, there is a home. And that home is with Christ. And just like he was raised from the dead, so too those who believe in him. So this is a really big deal. So here's the thing. I'm trying to make this a big deal, but let me understand. Let me let you understand how big this is. There's certain, so we talked about conversations earlier. There's certain conversations where another polite thing is, you never want to say always, right? Like, oh, you always do that. (laughs) That's not a good way to go. You say, wow, I'm a lot more consistent than I thought because there's very few things that I always do. (laughs) I mean, I like to do that, but always is a lot, you know, like there's no exceptions. So we tend to, in interpersonal skills, avoid those sorts of um, universal terms. We also try to avoid absolutes. Now, I understand our society is using superlatives more frequently. We say things like, absolutely, or that's the best, or all these crazy things. We're like, really? It's just an exclamatory statement. But I need to make three things absolute, always, 
universal, no matter what, 100% all the time in every way. I need to make three statements that if these aren't true, I should go to hell. I need to make three statements that if these aren't true, life is completely worthless. I need to make three statements that I can actually say, if you don't believe these, you are not a Christian. These three things are so absolutely essential. It doesn't matter what color or stripe or version or whatever of Christian you are. You have to believe this. And if you don't, it means you deny the scriptures and you deny Jesus. These are huge. Now, those are big statements, right? In our, in our world, people don't like to make exclusive statements. This is as exclusive as it gets. I don't think I can be much clearer with normal human words. I'm saying this is absolutely essential for Christianity. Here they are. Ready? Number one, the Trinity. Number two, the hypostatic union. I'll come back to that. Number one, the Trinity. Number two, the hypostatic union. And number three, the resurrection. Number one, the Trinity. Number two, the hypostatic union. Number three, the resurrection. If you deny these, you are outside the bounds of Christianity. You have to believe this. This is absolutely core and essential to our existence as biblical people. Okay, so what am I talking about? The Trinity. We as Christians, number one, affirm there is one God. If you, if you say there is more than one God, you are not a Christian. Christians believe in one God and three persons. Absolutely essential. We are not polytheist. We are not deist. We are monotheistic Trinitarians. We believe in one God and three persons. And if that is not the case, our whole system of salvation and everything else is messed up. It doesn't work. If there is no Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we are not saved. We need the Father to send the Son. We need the Son to die for our sins. And we need the Holy Spirit to indwell us and bring us back to him. And if that doesn't happen, there's no salvation. The Trinity is essential. Number one, the Trinity. Number two, the hypostatic union. Now, it's a big word to say that Jesus is both. Jesus is both fully God and fully man. If he's not fully God, he can't bring us to God. If he's not fully man, he can't identify with us and pay for our sins. In order for Jesus to be the Savior, he has to be both. He has to be fully God and fully man. Without that, nothing. If Jesus is half and half or only like God and a bod or whatever, it doesn't work. He has to be perfect God, perfect man, 100% all the time, forever and ever. And if that is the case, then this thing holds together. But if, it not, if not, it just tumbles like a house of cards. He has to be God and man. Now, that's why in the previous section, it's a big deal. The vineyard parable, Jesus say, hey, if you reject the son, what's the father going to do? Because this is an indisputable matter. You can't dispute this. If you're a Christian, if you're a Bible believer, Jesus is the son. And to reject the son means judgment from the father. This is a big one. And then today's is the resurrection. The resurrection um, is also on that level. If Jesus isn't risen from the dead, this whole thing is done. It's over. It doesn't work. The resurrection is absolutely essential. And I'll show you that as we work through it. So 
the Trinity, the hypostatic union, and the resurrection. Today's passage is on the resurrection, and that's the dispute going on. Let me show you John chapter 3, verse 14. Most of us know John 3, 16, which says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. All right, that's John 3.16. Jump back to 3.14, just a bit before that. And this is what it says. It says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Notice the word must. Most of us are jumping to the word Jesus or eternal life or believe and we put that out there. But here is an absolutely essential ingredient that none of this would work without. And that is the son of man must absolutely day. It is necessary in the Greek. It says Jesus must be lifted up. And this is why this is so astronomically beautiful and amazing. When you dig deep into this text, many commentators point out what you see is the lifting up doesn't just refer to the resurrection, but the whole process of Jesus's experience. So when he goes up on a cross, what happened to him? He was lifted up on the cross. He goes down in the grave and then God the Father raised him. And what happens? He's lifted up out of the grave. He's now on earth for a few 40 days after his resurrection. And after he's been resurrected, what's going to happen to him? He's going to ascend into heaven and be lifted up. Exactly right. Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is lifted up. What do you think the application is here? Man, lift him up. That's the only thing to do with Jesus. He's lifted up on the cross. He's lifted up out of the grave. And he's lifted up to ascend at the Father's right hand where he sits and intercedes on our behalf forevermore. Our job is to lift him up. It is absolutely necessary in every way. The whole point of being human is to lift up Christ and point to him. It is necessary. So the resurrection here, when it is denied by the Sadducees, I mean, the whole thing, it just doesn't work. And Jesus himself has been pointing throughout the book of Mark to his passion. And he's been saying, he said it in Mark three times. He says it more in Matthew and says, look, the son of man is going to be crucified. He's going to be buried. He's going to raise three days later, just like Jonah and the whale. He's coming back again. It is absolutely necessary that he must be lifted up. So that's a great explanation. Pastor Jeremy, what's the point? Here, there's the explanation. Let's move into the point. The point is, this is why we call it a gospel. Gospel means good news. This is why it is good news. Because if Jesus stays in the grave, it's done. Like, it's all over. But if he comes out, then that means God is good, God is in control, and Jesus wins. That means that Jesus wins. You know, if he stays down, he loses. He's over. He's tapped out. It's done. But if he gets up, that means he wins. And if Jesus wins, that means we win. 
If we're on his team, the same thing that happens to him happens to us. And of course, that means suffering in life and eventual death, death and difficulty. But Jesus is described as the first fruits or the forerunner of the resurrection. So what happens to Jesus happens to us. Now, um, I only have a few, like 10 more minutes. So I'm not going to go through all of this right now. But if you go to our website after this, our amazing team is going to upload this um, handout that I uh, made for you guys earlier this week. And it talks about what we know from scripture happens to the human believer after death and the resurrection. Okay, so it has five different principles, one about matter, one about image, which we talked about last week, one about redemption, one about the prototype who is Jesus, and then the precedent that he set. And so you can download this sheet and you can look at what we know. For example, what do we know? After Jesus was raised from the dead, he ate. So because he's the prototype, we can assume that in the new heavens and the new earth and the kingdom of God, there will be eating. But, but he, amen. Yes, sir. That's right. But some of you may not say amen when you read this and it says there's no more marriage because we'll be like the angels. <laughs> like, oh man, rats. You see, there are some things that are the same and there's some things that are different. There's continuity and discontinuity. And what happens is people who want to sell books or make movies or make a lot of money get really fancy and really speculative about all their imaginings and great things that are to be in heaven and this and that and this and that. But let me assure you, the more descriptive you get, the further from scripture you become. The more you try to explain, the further from the truth you get. And that's why I printed out this sheet because there's only certain, there's very few things that we actually know. And we can sort of uh, make postulate or hypothesize based on this, then we think this, or based on that, then we think that. But we don't exactly know. We know that, for example, Jesus showed the disciple his scars. And so there's some continuity between the physical body of this life and the next. But we also know there's a resurrected body that will be free from pain and sickness and suffering and sorrow and death. So it's got to be a lot different than what I'm in now. (laughs) Amen? (laughs) Yeah. So there's things we know and things we don't. But, but... What is most important is that we know that God is good, God's in control, and Jesus wins. And if God is in it, then no matter what happens, everything's going to be okay. It's not done. There is more to come. Let me read you an illustration that I think helps with this a little bit. Um, Back in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. See, we remember those things, right? One time, Spain controlled both sides of the narrowest part of the Strait of Gibraltar. And at that narrowing of the two land masses, Africa and Europe, there was a huge marker called the Pillar of Hercules. And prior to Columbus in 1492, it carried the Latin saying, ne plus ultra, which means no more beyond. No more beyond. That was a standard belief at that time, and no one would dare question the prevailing conviction. But until Columbus made his discovery, there was a new coin minted in 1796, and you know what it said at the bottom of it? Plus ultra. 
more beyond. This is the reality of our future. There are things that we don't know and things that we do, but the scripture assures us that there is more beyond. In one of his books, A.M. Hunter, a New Testament scholar, um, relates the story of a dying man who asked a Christian doctor to tell him something about the place to which he was going. The doctor fumbled for a reply and he heard a scratching at the door. And the Holy Spirit revealed this to him and said, he said to his patient, do you hear that? And his patient said, yes, but what is it? He said, it's my dog. I left him downstairs, but he's grown impatient. And he's come up and he hears my voice. He has no notion of what is inside this door, but he knows that I am here. Isn't it the same with you? You don't know what lies beyond, but you do know that your master is there. There is a resurrection. It will happen. What is it like? Well, it's different, yet similar. Jesus says in verse 25, when they rise from the dead. He doesn't say if or maybe or perhaps, but when we rise from the dead, they will neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like angels of heaven. There is more beyond. I think, this is what I'm deducing from scripture, I think that what happens is this. We die. We're put in the grave, we're cremated, we're eaten by fish, whatever. And then when Jesus returns, the God who created us out of dust is able to reassemble our molecules. We are given resurrected, new, perfected bodies that we'll be able to eat, walk, talk, just like we can now. But we will be different We'll be in the presence of God and there will be no longer any need for procreation. And the primary marriage that we will be focused on is not the previous union we had with our spouse, but the current union we will have with Jesus. And as a result, we will sit at his table, his banner over us will be love and we will fellowship with him. We will work, we will enjoy his paradise and live in the new Edenic state forever and ever. That's a good place to be. And that is where we're going. And that is where we're headed. That is our direction. That is our hope. And that is what lies beyond. But in the meantime, we struggle. In the meantime, there's sin. And there's challenges. And sometimes it's easy to get discouraged because we know how far we are from that place. And yet here's the good thing. Ephesians chapter 1 verse 19 says this. Here's what's going on. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power? See, the scripture and the power is to us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked when he raised or lifted up Jesus from the dead and seated him at the right hand in heavenly places. See, the title of this sermon is Same Power. Perhaps some of you know that Jeremy Camp song, but here's the point. The same exact power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the power that is living and breathing and active and at work inside of you. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead 
means that we actually do have the power to change. There are many things in my life that I personally can't overcome. And I think, oh, why try? But the reason is because it's not on me. But instead, the reason is the Holy Spirit's power that raised Jesus from the dead is raising me up as well. And as a result, relying on his strength, not my own, we actually can change. Even the hardest, most stubborn, most difficult, most permanent apparent habit or pattern we have can be changed by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. That power is so powerful. You got to understand, there's a lot of powers in this world. But what we have is we have the power to kill, but we do not have the power to make alive. Doctors can preserve your life. They can help you. But nobody ever has been able to walk over to a truly dead person and say, get up. Only Jesus can do that. And with that power, that power, We can live our everyday life. That power that says get up can also tell the bad stuff to stop. That power that says get up can tell the good stuff to start. It's that power that makes a difference in my life and in yours right now here today. That is the Holy Spirit power of Jesus Christ. And that's also the same power that gives us the strength to persevere and endure and push through Because it's not our strengths, but Christ. This is the motivation to suffer through. That I know that there is a home and a hope. And as a result, because of the spirit in me, we can keep going. And not quit. I'm working really hard (laughs) to communicate as best I can. Probably fallen and broken in many ways. The importance of the resurrection. If nothing else... Get this, that the resurrection leads us home. And the same power that was at work in Jesus is at work in us. And with that power, we have hope. We can change. There is a future and something to look forward to. I can't tell you exactly what it looks like. I can't describe everything. But I can tell you there's more beyond and the master's there. Father, we thank you and praise you for Jesus, your son. Thank you for the hope that we have in him. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you for the power of God at work in us. Lord, we could be right about or wrong about many things, God, but let us not, let us not be wrong about you. Let us not give up or say we can't. Let us not give in, but let us keep going and not quit believing That you are good and you're in control and Jesus wins. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Pastor.